the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Lady of Wisdom, St. Martin of Torres. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so uh, yesterday we spoke about the church suffering. Today we are speaking about the church militant. And then on Sunday we spoke about, uh, on Tuesday we spoke about the church triumphant. So we know that the church spans these three different states of being and places of being uh, as we learned yesterday, that uh, purgatory is and purgatory, heaven, and hell are in fact places, even though those in purgatory, heaven, and hell do not have bodies. Um, so that's part of yeah, a longer, more nuanced discussion that was had yesterday. But we don't have to worry about that for today's discussion because we do have bodies and we are in a place that is called the planet Earth. So. Um, if you don't know that, it's the first fact that you learned tonight. Um, but I want to start with, uh, we talk about church militant. Um, the church militant is not just uh, a website for mad trads, but uh, it is also the way of just talking about the church existing on earth. So how do we talk about that? Well, I think generally, So I just want this talk tonight to be on the church itself. And the first question that needs to be asked is, did Jesus intend to form a church? Did Jesus truly intend to form a church? The reason why this is a worthwhile question to ask is because church is really only used in the Gospels one time, while uh, the kingdom of God is used 122 times in in the New Testament 99 of those times in the three Gospels. So Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Again, what is Christ's intention? Does he intend to form a church? Because we don't see him really using that word. The answer, as you'll assume me say, is yes, he did. But why would I say that? Uh, What I'm going to take from this first part of this talk is from Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger before he is Pope Benedict's, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, his book called to communion. So I'm really, I'm plagiarizing here. I don't have to worry about that because I'm not a UL student and so I can do what I want. Um, but the point that Cardinal Ratzinger makes uh, initially is that whenever the kingdom is being talked about, that Christ wants to gather and cleanse to prepare for the kingdom of God. So like the understanding is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And so because of that nearness, what does he want to do? Well, he wants to gather the members of the kingdom and and gathering them forms a community, uh, i.e. the church, and cleanse them, i.e. the sacraments of the church. And so this is how Jesus gathers and cleanses the eschatological, that word eschatological meaning the end times, people 
of God. And he does things that are very noteworthy to form these people. The second thing that he does is that the people understand that are in this community, the disciples, understand that they are part of this community. This is why the one thing, you know, the disciples don't ask, how do we cast out demons? How do we fast? But the one thing that they do ask is teach us how to pray. Not that they have never prayed before, right? They're, they're Jewish. They've prayed. But teach us how to pray because there's something about this community. If we're going to set ourselves apart, we need our own prayer. So the Jews, right? They have their own prayer that distinguishes them as a certain kind of community. You have the sacrifice of, like to the Greek gods that distinguish them to belong to Greece, right? Uh, to belong to that culture. Well, the disciples, Benedict says, or Ratzinger says, in requesting this prayer from Christ, are saying, how are we as a community going to pray? And then he says, you will praise this, our Father. Which those first two words give it away, right? Our Father, that we pray. This is not a personal individual you know, like, how do you pray? But how do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven. This is a communal prayer. The third thing that Ratzinger mentions is that this is not an amorphous group. That he cares very specifically about the numbers of the members chosen. Twelve that are then flanked by seventy. And the function of the twelve is that they might be with him and that he might send them. So important is this number 12 that whenever Judas betrays the, uh, you know, betrays and then, you know, takes his own life, uh, they need to find a 12. So what do they do? They cast lots and they get Matthias. So why the significance of 12? I mean, you think of an analogy, right? Um, If you have nine people walk out into a field on like, you know, in certain spots, whatever it is, like, you know what that is. Those nine people are a baseball team, you know, like there's something significant about that number. And so the disciple Christ's conscious choice, and we know this is an especially conscious choice, not that he needs it, but what does he do before he goes to, to uh, choose the 12? He goes up the mountain to pray. He goes up the mountain to pray to show us how important who these members are and that there are 12. And then the apostles obviously know this, that this is an important number because they choose the 12th person whenever they could have just said, you know what, we'll just do this with 11. Jesus has established these other 70 disciples. So, yeah, we can draw from them as needed. No, the 12 is important. And we know from the Old Testament what this importance is and that Jesus wants to communicate this importance not simply, you know, to us 2,000 years from now, right? It's not like, you know, um, we're reading the gospel and and Jesus says to, you know, like like Peter, he's like, and Peter, you will be my CEO, right? It's like, he's not trying to communicate it to us. He's trying to communicate it to... Um, those around him, which are the Jews. 
And so how would the Jews have received that this messianic figure is choosing 12 who are particularly close to him and then another 70? Well, this is how they would. Is that with the 12, you have the 12 tribes of the 12 sons of Israel, which then infers that Jesus himself is the patriarch or the father of these 12 sons that he is the one who unites these 12 sons. And that from these 12 tribes, um, as in the Old Covenant, that 12 tribes from them came the people of God, from these 12 men will also come the people of God. And that the 70 that are appointed are in the Jewish mind, in allusion to the fact that the new Israel will embrace all the peoples of the earth and that from Jesus, sorry, that the new peoples will embrace all the peoples of the earth. That is because the number of, in, in according to Jewish tradition, the number of non-Jewish peoples were 70. That is like the number of nations were 70. So that is why you would have the 70. That this salvation This is a new Israel, um, but that this salvation will also be extended to all the earth um, by the the fact of of the 70. The 70 also in the Old Testament are the 70 elders. That Greek word elder is uh, presbuteroi. Uh, Presbuteroi being presbyter in English or priest. So... There's that correlation as well, right? Those 70 being sent out to the corners of the earth to, uh, to bring about salvation to all the different nations. Now, the thing is, Jesus doesn't stop there by instituting this new Israel, this, by instituting this kingdom. So the old Israel... Um, well, let's stop at number six here on the sheet with the communal prayer. So while the Our Father was the first stage on the way toward a special communion of prayer with and from Jesus, as we saw already that in Mark chapter three, what is the function of the 12? That they might be with Jesus and that Jesus might send them. That he, they must simply be with Jesus and that Jesus must send them. Now, uh, while the Our Father was at first stage, Jesus takes it a further step that on the night before his passion, the night before he dies, he transforms the Passover of Israel into an entirely new worship. So again, he takes what is known, that is the Passover, because he's communicating to those who know it, and then transforming it. He's not doing something totally new, um, but he's taking what, is, what he has already given from all eternity as God and then furthering it to entirely new worship. And this logically meant, as in whenever Christ takes the Passover and he changes it, it would be like if someone came in here and change the Mass. You'd be like, oh, well, they're no longer Catholic. In other words, like the Mass is the thing that Catholics do 
and like what we signify ourselves with. It is the ritual worship. Passover is the most solemn of all the Jewish feasts. It is the ritual, you know, it is the ritual worship. And so to change that is to say, hey, we're not with these people anymore. We're making a break. We're making a shift. You know, I mean, you think about with sororities and fraternities, right? Like what differentiates one from the other? It's a large part of it is their initiation. You know, the ritual differentiates them from different groups. Um, and so, I mean, you have that obviously with teams as well, mascots, rituals, right? That ritual differentiates the people. And so he wants to break from the temple community and by establishing a new worship establishes a new covenant. And so what is the center of the Jewish community? It is the temple. It is the temple. This is why whenever Jesus talks about the end of the age, he's also talking about the end of the temple. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there that we can talk about. Jesus' temple of, well, I'm going to wait to make that connection. Um, because it's pretty profound. But So for Israel, the center of worship was the temple. It was the guarantee of its unity. And by its common celebration of the Passover, enacted this unity in its own life. Now, the new meal, that is what Jesus does the night before his passion, is now the bond uniting a new people of God. So there's, if Jesus does this, you know, outside of disjointed from the temple, well, now there is no longer any need for a center localized in an outward temple. The new temple is the body of the Lord. The new temple is the body of the Lord. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And so the body of the Lord, which is the center of the Lord's Supper, is the one new temple that joins the new Israel, or the Christians, together into a much more real unity than a temple of stone could ever do. This is from Ratzinger. So the new prayer is not the Shema, Hero God, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone, He is one, love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is kind of the community prayer of Israel, but it's the Our Father, the center, the unity, the unifying force of the people is no longer the temple, but it is now the new temple, which is the Lord's body Himself that has been destroyed and raised up in three days. This is also why we see at Christ's death, there's three things that happen. As Christ's body, his temple is torn by the lance, so then the earth is torn. There's an earthquake that happens, the temple of, of creation itself. But then as well, Christ is prophesying the destruction of the temple, um, which happens in 70 A.D., so that there is this new heaven and new earth that will come at the end of time. There's the resurrected body of Christ that comes three days later. And there's the new temple of the church that also comes. So that is, um, you know, all these things. We're not making all this stuff up is what I'm saying. You know, like there's a real intrinsic connection within salvation history to see some real coherency here. Okay. So then from what we've just talked about, there's another question. 
right? So I wanted that first part to just kind of be apologetics. Yes, Jesus did intend to form a church. But what the church is, is Jesus's body. What unites the members of the church is Jesus's body. And first, sacramentally, as we have in Mass. But in the union, so what we know about the church finds unity in the body of the Lord. What does this mean for the church now? If we are joined to Christ's body sacramentally, what does this mean? It means that by joining and sharing in Christ's body, the members of his church are now connected to one another. They themselves are their own body. They are a mystical body, a body formed through grace. Okay, so now immediately the next question follows. Understanding this mystical body, what does that even mean? So with every body, there are different members. You know, I have head, shoulders, knees, and toes, right? We have different members of the body. So um, we have to talk about the body's most important member, and that is the head. The head is the most important member of the body, right? Now, um, understanding the head, the head, you know, within a body, right? You have like the head is the command center. It's the beginning of the nervous system. It, it does all of these things. And the church then, if uh, we have to understand who is the head, the head is Christ. The head is Christ. So the head is now uh, ascended into heaven, but its members are still on earth. You know, its members are still on earth. Unless you're part of the tri- church triumphant, right? Then, then you're in heaven with, you know, with the, uh, with the head. But, um, yeah. So we have to talk specifically, and this is where I'm going to shift from Cardinal Ratzinger to uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, what does a head do? So he asked several questions about this within uh, the Summa. So what does a head do? If we understand what a head does, then we understand what Christ does to the church, to his members. So Thomas says that the head does three things. It bestows order, protection, and power. Order, protection, and power. So first, order. Uh, He says, order indeed. For the head is that first part of man, beginning from the higher part. That literally, like, you know, your head is above the rest of your body, right? Unless you just, like, walk on your hands or something all the time. But normally your head is the first part of your body. And that hence is that every principle is usually called a head. So what he's saying is that the, uh, from the head, you know, like comes everything else, uh, the highest part of the body, like top down, that Christ is the principle, the starting point for the church. So you say like, what are your principles? You know, if you ask somebody that your principles are like, what you truly believe, you know, what is your method of acting? You act based off of principle. A principled person is someone who sticks to their principles of acting. They're not willy-nilly. So Christ himself, uh, Thomas says, is the principle of the church. The next thing that the head does, and how is Christ the principle, he says? On account of Christ's nearness to God. So, we have to, you know, in order to understand the church, we have to know who Christ is. So, in account of his nearness to God, we know that he is the Word made flesh, the splendor of the Father. He is, his, uh, he is always God, 
and then in time takes on a human nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, of course then, Christ is uniquely near to God. Why is Christ uniquely near to God? Well, because he is God, you know? Um, So, yeah. uh, Because of that, on account of his nearness to God, his grace is the highest and first, though not in time since all have received grace on account of his grace, he says. Okay, the second thing that the head does is that the head provides perfection. So inasmuch, she says, that in the head dwells all the senses of the body, both exterior and interior, whereas in the other members, there's only touch. So like, you know, in my head, you know, I have exterior and interior. I have taste, I have smell, I have sight, uh, I have hearing. But like my, like if I needed to hear you, I wouldn't like stick my knee up to your mouth, you know, to hear you or something like that, right? I'm going to stick my head up there, right? My head contains all of the other senses. Um, The others just contain the power of sense. Um, So he has perfection, Thomas says, as regards the fullness of all graces. So other members of the body, for instance, uh, Christ is the one true priest because he is the one acceptable to, he's the one sacrifice acceptable to the father. He is the one who offers the perfect sacrifice of himself to the father. He has the fullness of graces. Another person, you know, might have another member of the body might have the grace of tongues or something like that. Another member might have the grace of, uh, of, you know, at, um, being an apostle, right? Another one else, might have uh, the grace of, of healing, right? Christ has the fullness of all of them. You know, the head contains all the senses, while the rest of the body only contains that one sense of touch. Okay, and then the third thing that the head does is that it provides power. Because the power and movement of the other members, together with the direction of them, their acts, is from the head. Basically saying the head governs the rest of the body. You know, if you've ever seen a chicken with its head cut off, it's, it's out of control. You know, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a sight to see, um, as I can be as generic as I can there. So, but the, the head provides power, movement, uh, to the other members. And by reason of, um, their sensitive and motive power, their ruling, hence, the ruler is called the head of a people. You just make that as a side. You know, you call a ruler as a head of a, of a certain people. Um, and so Christ the head, because Christ has the fullness of grace, and we'll talk about that at question six, what that grace is. He has the power to bestow graces upon all the other members, as the head can control like the very, move, the very movement of my fingers now, or like my foot now, or whatever, right? Like Christ can affect all the different members. Okay, so I want to step aside for a second before continuing this train of thought, just to ask the question, who is part of this body? Who is part of this body? Um, actually, No. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push that question down. It's going to make more sense whenever we talk about um, the uh, question six. How 
does this head power the body? And then how, and then question seven, we'll get back to, um, no, we will do six, five, seven. Hold me accountable to that. Okay. Uh, I thought about this, I promise. I didn't just like get this off cliff notes or something. Okay. Um, so question six, how does this head power the body? Thomas says that by the very habitual grace Christ has towards his sanctification and justification in his soul. Now, this is a really cool concept. This is a really cool concept because this is going to help us be amazed at the church's function. This is what Thomas says. We have to understand Christ. So Christ is one divine person and with two natures, human and divine. In his divine nature, Christ is the word, right? He is, he, he has what's called, he's the word in his human nature as well. He's the word made flesh. I mean, I don't want to be a, an historian here, but, uh, you know, I know you, all you guys are wondering if I'm going to be an historian since you, know, you hear about the heresy of historianism. But, um, but Christ uh, in his divine nature has what's called uncreated grace. Grace being the life of God. Christ is uncreated grace, which is simply just another way of saying that he is truly God. Right? And that God is not created. Okay. It gets a lot more complicated now when we talk about his human nature. So, in his human nature, a lot of times like we'll think like, yeah, like God took on a body in Christ. But Christ also has a human soul as well. And the reason for the necessity of this is um, that whatever Christ did not assume, he did not save. So if Christ doesn't have a soul, then he didn't save your soul. He didn't save my soul. Christ doesn't have a true body. He didn't save your body. He didn't save my body. So what Christ does not assume, he does not save. Now, that means that though Christ in his hum- the human nature, the proximity to the word, has its own uncreated grace, if he is going to save us, then he must also participate in created grace in his humanity. So that we receive grace through the sacraments. But then Christ has his own grace in his humanity that is created by the, uh, by the Godhead to dwell within him. That, Thomas says, is for the sanctification and the justification of his own body. You think, why does Christ need to be sanctified and justified? He's perfect already. It is true. Christ does assume a perfect human nature. But what grace does is that it not only perfects our nature, but it supernaturalizes. Supernature. It raises our nature. So that Christ, Thomas says, is going to be raised to supernature, and if we are to be raised to that supernature, is going to need created grace. All right. Why do do I care about that at all? Why are we talking about this? Because now I want to come back to it. How does this head power the body? By the very habitual grace Christ has towards his own sanctification and justification in his soul. In other words, what Thomas is saying is 
the grace that Christ has, the body now has. It's not as if Christ has this different, unique grace. Why? Because he's the Son of God and then his members have something else. No, the same grace that justifies and raises Christ's body to the supernatural level is the same grace that powers the body that is given to us. Okay, I'm going to stop and take you know a second to talk about who are the members of this body. Who are the members of this body? The baptized actually, because the baptized share in this grace. But um, Christ comes and dies for all. His death is for all men, to save all. And so what, um, th- what Thomas says is that the baptized are actually, and that the unbaptized potentially. That Christ is still the head of all men because he took on human nature, which all men share because all men are humans. And that potentially all can be part of, uh, potentially all are part of Christ's body. Um, and then they are made into, the, into Christ's body by uh, Christ's power and their own free will. Okay, I just wanted to make that side note. Who belongs to the body? Everyone belongs to the body. Some potentially, others actually. Now, the implications and the means by which we receive the grace that justifies and sanctifies Christ's actual body, how does that come down to us? Well, through the sacraments. The sacraments are the life of the second person of the Trinity himself in his humanity that are now given to us to make us like him. To make us like him. And in order to understand that, we also have to understand that seventh question, how exactly is Christ the head of the church? And so Thomas goes back to that image of a head. What does a head do? The head influences the members, he says, in two ways. First, by a certain intrinsic influence. As much as the head is the motive for sensitive force flow to the other members. Uh, But secondly, by an exterior guidance. And as much as by sight and the senses, which are rooted in the head, man is guided in his exterior acts. So saying, as we talked about before, the head governs all the different members of the bodies. Uh, all the different members of the body. But the head also contains, right, all the senses. And so, while the head governs the body intrinsically, it also governs the body extrinsically. In the sense that, like, okay, I know that I desire to walk. I am walking. My head is telling me, you know, is, is governing the members of my body to move up and down to walk. But then I look outward, and then, oh, a car on, on St. Mary. By exterior governance, I say, okay, body, stop, you know, so that body doesn't go this way, right? Um, so the, the head governs intrinsically within its own members, and intrinsically, Thomas says, by the life of grace, that we are given the life, the second person of the Trinity incarnate in his humanity, but also exteriorly by governance, 
And so what Thomas says is that, and this is why we say that the bishops are the head of the mystical body, is that Christ looks externally for the whole church, but then the bishops look externally for particular churches. So like Bishop Douglas Desitel is the head of the particular church of the Diocese of Lafayette. Now, the head also looks in the direction, not just of danger, of the car in St. Mary's, but the head of Christ looks in the direction of the Father, since Christ is constantly gazing upon the Father. Uh, This is what Thomas says even during his earthly life, that by the proximity of Christ's divinity to his humanity, that Christ always has the beatific vision. He actually doesn't have faith. He has the fullness of faith. He has what faith believes. He has sight. That Christ is always looking at the Father. So that then the church, with the eyes of Christ, is looking toward the Father and then moving its body, its members, towards the Father. That is, this is the idea of how the head influences the church. So, um, knowing that the head influences interior and exteriorly. Um, we know that the interior, interiorly, that this is only from the grace of Christ. Uh, I mean, like, Paul is really big on this, right? And when he's talking about, like, yeah, sure, um, I planted and Apollo watered, but it was God who, who granted the growth. Um, that only Christ is the one who is the, the life of the church. That by his grace, the church grows. But the influence of the other members of the church as regard exterior guidance is just said, uh, are those members of the church. So, and then he puts it in two categories. Um, first, as in as much as Christ is the head of all who pertain to the church in every place and time and states, but all other men are called heads with reference to certain special places. So bishops, reference to determined times, the Pope, head of the whole church, or during the time of his pontificate, um, with reference to determined states, much as those people are wayfarers. You know, so it's not like, for instance, uh, like the Pope is head of the church, militant, you know. Um, it's, it's not, not that they would even need, you know, they're beholding God in the beatific vision. But it's not as if uh, the, the church triumphant is like, you know, like under obedience necessarily to the Pope. Not that it'd be disobedient, but you get the point, right? That the Pope is head of the members who are in the wayfarers, who are, who are still pilgrims. Uh, there's no need for that for those who are joined to Christ in eternity um, now because he is truly in heaven. And then... Yeah, so secondly, because Christ is the head of the church by his own power and authority, while others are called heads is taking Christ's place. Okay, so then what, how do we look at this simple vision? Because this is kind of what I'd like to just leave you with, is understanding what we know the church, Our Lady of Wisdom, the sacraments, the corporal works of mercy, uh, the spiritual works of mercy, um, the, the actual governing structure of the church. 
How do we understand that under the simple vision, then, of Christ as head? So, if Christ is head of this one body that is the church, then basically, the church is to be Christ. The church is to be Christ in the world. The church, in a sense, is its own sacrament to the world. So that we say uh, that Christ, for instance, is the sacrament, quote-unquote, of the Father. That he makes the Father visible. The church then, what does the church do? Makes Christ visible in the world. Right? We would like it to make Christ visible in the world. And then what are then the means of doing that? Well, it is continuing Christ's ministry. So what, how does Christ make the Father present in the world. By his three offices, the triple munera, they're called a priest, prophet, and king. So, the, as we talked about in the very beginning, Christ is this new Israel who gathers the twelve tribes. Within the people of Israel, there are these three offices that were of extreme importance. The priest is the one who offered sacrifice to God. The prophet is the one who spoke God's word to the people, and the king was the one in governance of the people. Christ, as the new Israel, embodies all three of those offices within his own self. A fun side note, not that I've ever read it, um, because I'm not a Catholic dork, but the Lord of the Rings, um, uh, Gandalf, is this prophetic figure, um, who's Aragon, the king, is the kingly figure, and then Frodo is this priestly figure um, because he has to offer the sacrifice of himself or, like, you know, the sacrifice of the ring in, uh, in Mordor, yeah, in the volcano. So that, you know, is just, you know, as an aside, is, uh, you know, as a kudos to, to any dorks here. So, um, so Christ embodies all that within himself. Those three offices, priest, prophet, and king. Um, so then the church, as the members of Christ's body, must continue that in the world. So priests, what does a priest do? A priest offers sacrifice to God. Okay. All right. So this is where a priest does priest things, right? Um, offering sacrifice to God. And what is the sacrifice? The same sacrifice of the cross. That is Christ's body being sacrificed uh, for the salvation of the world to the Father. It is an unbloody sacrifice because it's not, the sacrifice is not redone, as Martin Luther would accuse the church of having done, is that we, like, we are almost killing God over and over and over again. But rather because Christ... And his humanity dies, but in his humanity dies, is still always joined to his divinity until his death, of course, you know. Um, well, no, because his soul, sorry, his soul is joined to, anyway, the technical thing. Uh, uh, I'm really self-conscious about this being heretic thing. But, uh, but that Christ, yeah, anyway, that Christ is joined to the word who is outside of time, so that the graces that are worn on the cross are continued outside of time, and then in time, particular places. So you think of, like, on uh, 
on Calvary, you know, 33 AD, Christ dies on the cross, you know, in his, in his humanity. His, his divinity does not die because God cannot die or suffer in his divine nature because the divine nature cannot die nor suffer. Well, in his divinity, that's happening on this horizontal line. Why? Because outside of time doesn't happen in this particular mode of time. So then whenever a mass is celebrated, we're still drawing from that same horizontal, horizontal line, right? Still drawing from the same horizontal line. Um, so this happens, and I'll just go briefly through the seven sacraments and the manners in which uh, this happens. Um, when I get to that. So Christ in his priestly office does that. In his kingly office, there is a governance. There is a reign. Uh, we say that the bishops have the fullness of the priesthood. Uh, like, for instance, I cannot ordain a priest. No matter how hard I put my hands together and prayed to God, I couldn't do it. You know, it just it would not happen. I don't have the fullness of that grace. The bishops do. Um, now, yeah, and so... There, there is that real governance then over the people of God that Christ institutes whenever he gathers the twelve again, you know. Um, and then that apostolic succession from the bishops continues. And then there's the prophetic, you know, the prophetic mission of Christ, was the, which is the prophetic mission of the church, which is to proclaim the truth of God's word into eternity. So, Christ is truly the prophet because he is the word made flesh. What does Christ do? He proclaims himself. What does the church do? Proclaim Christ. So um, that is how that works. Now I want to talk then about, particularly about those seven sacraments and how Christ establishes them as a way to close. Um, And then just a word about, uh, like a word of exhortation about being uh, Christ, you know, as the church. But that, as we know, the seven sacraments will start with the Eucharist, that whenever Christ takes the twelve as the patriarch of, the, of his sons, you know, of his, uh, of his sons taken into that upper room, uh, that he not only tells them, this is my body, this is my body, which will be given up for you, but then he tells them as, you know, always joined, uh, hypostatically to the word, so always join, you know, as God, do this in memory of me. That is, this is a divine commandment. Do this in memory of me. Take this, all of you eat of it, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in memory of me. It's a divine command. So that Christ wants them to continue that along that horizontal line, vertically all throughout time, you know? Um, okay. So now we have confession. In that same upper room, John 20, verse 19, we have Jesus taking those sons, now those priest sons, who are able to offer that sacrifice of his body, and then say, um, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. So they have the power to forgive sins, they have power to retain, that is, to not retain sins. You have those 12 as well in the Gospel of, um, in the Gospel of Luke or Mark, uh, one of those two, going out and anointing, anointing sick people, right? This is the reference to that. Uh, matrimony in Matthew 19, we're actually going to hear about matrimony this Sunday in the Gospel, that uh, 
this is always part of God's plan, but that because of, and the power of baptism, but because God now takes on a human nature, matrimony itself is supernaturalized. Matrimony itself becomes its own sacrament by default because these two humans now sharing in God's nature through baptism are coming together and forming a communion. And so it is reflective then because they are supernaturalized because they are uh, sons in the sun is reflective of God's love for his people. Um, And then with baptism, we have uh, Christ, you know, Matthew 28, all authority. Uh, Matthew 28, also known as uh, the gospel according to focus. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, is um, Christ saying, all authority has been, given, uh, has been given to me, both in earth and in heaven. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that they uh, are to share, baptized to plunge to share in uh, Christ's divine nature, to be partakers, the church says, of the divine nature. And then finally, uh, well, holy orders was that commandment uh, that Christ gives to uh, the apostles in the upper room. And then um, confirmation happening at Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit, and how uh, the effect of that is that the apostles are now um, are now driven out and encouraged to die for the Lord. You know, a fun fact, this isn't church teaching, but uh, that like Thomas, and not just Thomas, many others believe that after that descent of the Holy Spirit, that the apostles never sinned mortally after that. Um, so, yeah, in conclusion, so what is the church? The particular church of Our Lady of Wisdom is uh, not, like Razi would say, a party, you know? Like, we have a party, uh, like a political party. And what is a political party? The political party is the manifestations of my own interests that I desire to put out there, and I want other people to join my interests. And so there's a lot of different political parties that identify themselves according to their interests. The church is, it cannot be that, you know? I cannot be so attached to Our Lady of Wisdom that I am not attached to the rest of the church because the church is the member of Christ's body. It is, we are subject to the head to where in being subject to the head, the members of the head have to obey you know, they have to obey what the command, what the, what the command of the head says. If I wanted my hand to move and somehow it like went like that, like I go to the doctor, something is horribly wrong, you know. Um, and so the different members, it's not up to us to have our own interests in mind and to pick and choose or not be subject to the universality of the church. And even the universality of the church is not just the collection of all the churches in the Diocese of Lafayette and what is the interests of all the churches in the Diocese of Lafayette or all the churches in America or, you know, blow the bubble up, but the interests of Christ. But the interests of Christ. Because the mission of the church 
uh, is on earth is to make Christ present. So we'll close with prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady of Wisdom, St. Martin de Porres, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.